Prologue Like most children who survive incest or sexual abuse, I am burdened with varying levels of shame and guilt. Survivors struggle to make sense out of something for which there is no sensible answer. From the instant the abuse occurs, our innocence and trust and faith are scarred. We often spend our lives feeling polluted. The years of silently carrying my experiences in my body and in my mind assaulted and eroded both my spirit and my sense of self. The damage was carved into my being. I have invested much more energy and time to stop this erosion of my sense of self than the energy invested in my original abuse. My perpetrators moved on, unconcerned and unburdened. My childhood was normalcy and dysfunction. School, chores, piano lessons, band, choir, friends, little league, church, and scouting existed in parallel with sexual abuse, physical abuse, my parents' endless fighting, my loneliness, and an utter lack of affection in my life. I was incapable of managing my opposing public and private lives. My body and brain compensated through nervous tics, rocking myself to sleep and forgetting. As I wrote this episode, my head tick resurfaced. I self-medicated with liquor and food. I re-traumatized myself as an extension of revisiting and sharing my trauma. As I wrote, my body and mind would physically attempt to shut down to escape the subject. Several times I was driven to step away, lay down, and sleep. This period of my life is particularly difficult to revisit. But I have learned through the work I've done in therapy that I am strong enough to cope. I am able to reset because I have invested the time in myself and continue to do the work. I believe it is tremendously important to share my experiences to help others understand or cope with their own journey or the journey of a loved one. My goal is always awareness, understanding, and compassion, never pity. This experience of putting my journey out there to the world has been a gift to myself. Growth is not painless. Many of the things I share, I'm then able to release. I've carried them for so long. It's freeing. This journey backward has revealed areas I need to revisit in therapy, but it has also been fascinating to scrutinize experiences I haven't visited since acquiring the psychological tools I now have. I was able to see more nuance in some, grace in others, and even found some empathy and forgiveness for myself. There are days when my experiences own me, and days when I own them. Healing these deep, early wounds is both a process and a journey. It is a warrior's work to revisit and repair one's past. And so, let's begin. Skyborn, Episode 4, His Dark Intentions, by K.G. Lockrams. My exposure to her parents' endless gaslighting challenged my confidence in what I was seeing and experiencing day to day. When constantly exposed to reality, which is subsequently denied, the brain begins to find it difficult to distinguish between the truth and the lie. An incredibly effective tool when deployed by an abuser against their abused. My eroded confidence in what I was experiencing firsthand versus what I was told I was experiencing ate at my sense of self and quite effectively silenced me. The classic, are you going to believe what I tell you or what you see with your own eyes? Although at the time, there was no one to tell, and I lacked both the words and ability to describe what was happening. People didn't, and generally don't, want to believe a parent could sexually abuse their own child. 
My experience has made it difficult for me to accurately evaluate the motives and behaviors of those around me. I struggled to see people for who they truly were. My go-to position was to assume my instincts were wrong and other people's motives were pure. Or put another way, that others were okay and I was somehow less than. My father rarely engaged with me after my brother outed me regarding having had oral sex with my friend Jim. He preferred such activities be kept away in silent darkness. My mother was unwilling or unable to nurture me from the beginning. Ironic for a woman still jealous of a sister who was so beloved by her parents, she was carried about on a pillow. My siblings and I never formed a familial bond. I was living devoid of affection, longing for some emotional connection, in a family of people unable to form emotional attachments. In essence, I lost my father. The father who had treats for us in the driveway left for work one day and never came home. He was replaced by someone fundamentally different. It took a toll on my sense of permanence regarding the people around me. Our paternal grandmother had also been replaced. Where once was a functioning person, was now an empty shell who only looked like our grandmother. Her disappearance was explainable, and because I experienced some of her erosion directly, I could somewhat comprehend that shift. The change in my father has never made sense to me. Did the drinking change the man, or had the man done something that drove him to drink? The angry father who came home one day would drink to the point of passing out every night. As the afternoons wore on, we'd brace for the initial drama each evening would bring, and take comfort in the knowledge that quiet was coming. Once he'd finally pass out, the house would grow calm and we could uncoil until the next day, and the next, and the next. Other children in the neighborhood who lived near us would ask, Why is your father always shouting? It was embarrassing and true. I don't know, was the best answer I could offer, and I didn't know. The stress and pressure I endured day after day was suffocating, and because it's what children do, I continued to feel everything was my fault. Every violation of my person, every violation of my trust, my fault. It's the original victim blaming. I wanted the world to be fair. It wasn't. My parents were the gods of my world. They were doing horrible things to me and displeased with me at every turn. Therefore, I must be deficient. It must be my fault. Adopting this position made the world make sense. I longed for comfort and some measure of control. For the first eight years of my life, the majority of my physical affection came in the form of sex from my father and for a time a friend of his. Love, shame, admiration, guilt, pleasure, trust, and sexual gratification had been welded together. Boys discover their penises can be used to provide intentional pleasure as early as first grade. For me, I didn't discover this so much as have that awareness thrust upon me. I was masturbating regularly as a means of self-comfort and control by third grade. It felt both familiar due to my abuse and gratifying because that's what genitals do. They give us pleasure and provide gratification. While visiting my maternal grandparents one summer, the sleeping arrangements worked out such that I slept on a cot in their bedroom. Bored one afternoon, I went up to lay down. I began to masturbate. While I was doing so, my mother had silently crept up the staircase, practically jumped into the room, and exclaimed, What do you think you're doing? The instant shame. I can't imagine what had prompted her to do this. 
She didn't have a history of checking in on me. Nothing, I said, as I threw the sheet over my groin. Shamed. How could you do this to me? What would your grandfather think if he'd caught you? Again, more shame. Again, all about her. And the implication was clearly that I would have somehow disappointed him by engaging in this activity. Sexual gratification. Guilt. Shame. Welded together. A lifetime later, and I still work to divide them. I used to play the piano. I took lessons from first grade through most of elementary school. Our mother's parents had given her an upright piano early in their marriage. It was the one we used to crowd around while our father would play. My sister and brother excelled at music, and I was okay. I didn't like to practice. The piano was in the basement of our house, along the staircase my siblings would push me down. There was an antique, tiger-striped oval picture frame with convex glass on the wall next to the piano, with a picture of an angry-looking couple. They'd stare out at me in disapproval as I'd practice, my mother calling out corrections from the kitchen upstairs. The home office with the dark room was at my back. I was unnerved by that basement for so many reasons. Eventually, my discomfort with the basement won, and I refused to take lessons anymore. I used my trumpet as an excuse, saying I didn't have time to practice both. Since the piano lessons cost money and practicing the trumpet was free, my argument worked. In fifth grade, I was one of a dozen members of my elementary school safety patrol. We'd act as hall and traffic safety monitors. It was a program sponsored by AAA. The job came with a white cotton sling belt and a metal badge. Participating gave me a needed sense of purpose and belonging. I was certified as a home safety inspector by the local fire department at a school assembly. This came with a less impressive plastic badge. It also came with a signed card and a strong encouragement to carry it door-to-door, present it to neighbors, and offer them a free fire safety inspection. Encouraging young children to enter the homes of strangers. One's initial reaction may be, well, they're neighbors. True, but several of these neighbors, it would turn out, were also molesting their children. I was surprised to find that by the end of fifth grade, I was a card-carrying member of the NRA. Without ever having touched or fired a weapon, I was presented with a signed Card of Competency in Firearm Safety and Safe Hunting Practices in a joint program between the NRA, my state's Department of Natural Resources, and our school system. It came with a signed wallet card and an orange and black iron-on patch with a bunny at the center of a target. That was the final in-school program I attended in elementary school. Aside from school and music, scouting was the most stabilizing force in my childhood. I was able to engage with kids from our development outside of school or church. Cub Scouts seemed largely about learning self-control, crafting, developing a civic awareness, and grooming us to embrace gender role stereotypes. For me, it was also a safe space, which meant regularly, and I needed that. We made crafts out of ivory snowflakes, various kinds of pasta, coffee cans, and food coloring. Cub Scouts was where I learned how to tie a necktie. It strikes me that my father, who wore a tie six days a week, never taught me how to tie one. Similar to how my grandmother, who I only saw once or twice a year, taught me to play bridge and cards, even though my mother was active in a bridge club. I existed in an affection desert. Just before the holidays during my fifth grade year, our father asked my sister and me to help him pick out a Christmas present for our mother. We spent weeks combing through catalogs to find things she'd enjoy that we believed he would actually be willing to spend the money on. 
We presented our list to him a few weeks before Christmas. He gave it a blank stare. What's this? I already bought her a present, he said and dismissed us. It was the last time as a child I ever believed his intentions were sincere. I was ten. Later that winter, he spent a number of weeks in South Korea for work. His absence brought a calm to the house I'd never known. Our mother seemed relaxed, and the house wasn't in a constant state of chaos and reaction. My sister spent time out of her room socializing with our mother and me, and we'd watch TV after dinner. Our brother was busy in his room working on his side hustle, soaking oregano in formaldehyde and selling it as pot. Our father would call every so often, and once told our mother he was bringing us gifts, which seemed out of character. It had been so long. When he arrived home, he didn't have much with him and explained the gifts were coming. He'd either shipped them or there was a delay with the airlines, I don't remember. But given the Christmas gift ruse and the day he tricked us into cleaning the basement of the attic with a promise of money that never materialized, I no longer put much faith in his stories. His lessons not to trust him were sinking in. He did have a few things he had brought with him on the plane. Small flags of South Korea, banknotes and coins, clothing, a carved jade necklace for our mother. Hoping to discover something extra, I snuck into their room and rummaged through his luggage before he unpacked. I found two more surprises. A half-used tube of Doc Johnson's Joy Jelly personal lubricant and a box of condoms with very few left. And so, at ten, I realized my father was having sex outside his marriage. I chose not to tell my mother. I didn't want to hurt her, and I didn't want to be punished for snooping or beaten for revealing such a dark secret. I couldn't trust telling either of my siblings. My brother would surely weaponize the information, and my sister, being who she was, would feel compelled to tell her, regardless of the consequences. I chose to carry the secret in silence. There is an incident between my sister and father around this time. He entered her room, and they had a physical fight. It was the first time this had ever happened that I was aware of. She was deeply upset. Our bedroom closet shared a common wall, and soon after their fight, I took a handheld drywall saw and cut an access port between them, in case either of us ever needed an escape. When her parents found out, they didn't punish me. They didn't even ask me why. It took my sister another 30 years to tell me the whole story. Dad attacked me once when I was a teenager, she said. I remember the fight you had in your bedroom. It was more than that. She paused and looked away. I think she was considering if she wanted to say the words. He came into my room, shoved me against the wall. She took a breath. He fondled me and grabbed my breasts. What did you do? I went to Mom, crying, and told her what happened. She paused. Mom said, Now you know how I feel. Our mother offered her only daughter no comfort, no outrage. In classic form, she made our trauma about her and her trauma. This story helped me better understand why my sister spent so much time alone in her room or completely out of the house after that day. It also explained why her parents hadn't yelled at me for making that hole between our closets. It was that spring I looked up the word homosexual. I didn't know what to make of my reaction to the word. It resonated with me. But the messaging from my family and society at large made it clear that being homosexual was wrong. Homosexuals were not even human. They were things to be ridiculed and bullied and beaten to death in the peaceful manner of the teachings of Christ. At the time, my exposure to homosexuals was limited to Jeff at the airfield, and my father did not hide his disdain for him 
He also implied that because Jeff was homosexual, he was by default also a pedophile, a common societal message toward homosexuals. Also that spring, I walked home with a girl from my class who lived a few doors away from me. Out of nowhere, she said, I'll show you mine if you show me yours. Okay, I said. I was as curious as she was. The whole thing occurred inside a neighbor's waste bin enclosure. It was a very pragmatic, asked and answered, and we continued on to our respective homes, unimpressed. By the time I left elementary school, at an age I wouldn't have been able to articulate what constituted an act of sex, I had twice as many non-consensual sexual experiences as consensual, due to my father and brother. Also by the time I left elementary school, my dissociative amnesia about my father's sexual abuse was firmly in place. The dis-ease was always in my body, but my mind blocked out the memories. I always had access to the memories of my brother pipping me out, the who, what, and where of it, but my mind scrambled the timeline to make me older. My generalized dissociative disorder allowed me to cope with the overwhelming and ever-present stressors I could neither prevent nor control. For me, it manifested in an ability to separate my core self from whatever my body was going through. I can compartmentalize my experiences. This experience goes in this box, that one goes in that box, and so on. By the age of 11, I had been taught my body was not my own, and that also went in its own box. The lids of each box were tightly closed. I did leave elementary school tick-free, but was still rocking myself to sleep. That summer, I became friends with Tommy and his older brother, Teddy. They had moved in next door that winter. Tommy had sandy blonde hair, hazel eyes, a prominent Adam's apple, and a nose like Rod Stewart. They had access to their father's porn magazines, which were endless. Our father was a big fan of Playboy, but their father had magazines like Wii and Hustler which were in no way trying to pass themselves off as being about the articles. Tommy and I were watching TV in my upstairs family room one afternoon and had the house to ourselves. Hey, he said out of nowhere, let me show you this sex position I saw in the new issue of We. Okay. He put me on my back on the sectional sofa, stood between my legs, and said, put your ankles on my shoulders. He then began to thrust his pelvis against my butt. This would be better with our clothes off, he said. So we took our clothes off. He had the biggest penis I'd ever seen, as well as pubic hair. He put me in different positions and explained what he thought might come next if he were in that situation with a girl. During the coming weeks, Tommy would do this often. He called it practice. There was never penetration, just role play as exploration. I had entered puberty, and it felt different from prior physical exploration. My feelings for Tommy went beyond friendship, and I was suddenly introduced to a new level of consensual physical intimacy. My experiences with him were physically and emotionally bonding. I regularly spent the night at his house that summer, and eventually his pretend play turned into something more. During sleepovers, sometimes we'd fool around, sometimes we wouldn't. Sometimes we'd engage in oral sex, most times we didn't. We'd often ride around the neighborhood on our bikes late at night. It was wonderfully freeing. And regardless of everything else going on in my life, I enjoyed having a best friend again. Throughout the course of that summer, my feelings of friendship evolved into my first male crush. I told myself it was just that I admired him so much I wanted to be like him. I became a complete go-along for whatever he was interested in doing. I had been raised to be more interested in meeting the needs of others, so it worked out well. 
He was also someone I could go to with questions about life in general, as he'd already gone through the things I was about to face, like transitioning to middle school. I spent that summer wrapping my head around what middle school would be like. I was entering sixth grade. My sister was moving up to ninth, and we'd be going to the high school. I'd heard stories of the teachers I'd have from both my siblings over the years, but my classmates would be a new and unknown quantity. The kids in my grade from elementary school would be attending the same middle school as me, but there'd be a whole new set of kids I'd never met. I was a scrawny kid with bushy curly hair, lips so red other boys would accuse me of wearing lipstick, incredibly thick lensed glasses, and very little coordination. I spent the summer anxious about the new school, new teachers, new people, and having to take the bus to get there. There would also be formal gym class and showers. These worries combined with my home life had me always on edge, and I felt guilty about everything going on around me, whether I had any involvement in it or not. The bus stop situation was a microcosm of popularity and brutality. Unlike my peers, I wasn't going out of my way to develop any swagger or bravado. I wasn't effeminate, but I was tender-hearted and too busy treading the water around me to focus on fitting in. I was raised to believe I was helpless and voiceless, and feelings of helplessness are a bully's sweet spot. They can sense it. From the first day at the bus stop, I was seen as prey. I'd carry my books, my lunch, my awkwardness, and my shame to the bus stop each morning, and try and make as small an impact as possible. Mostly it worked out, but not often enough. I was beaten up three times at the bus stop that first fall, boys out to prove something, and using me to do it. Although I hated getting up early, I eventually took the earlier bus and walked just shy of a mile so I could catch it at the first stop. It was the path of least resistance and also allowed me to avoid the stress of finding someone to sit with after a couple of stops had already been made. By changing my bus stop, I was one of the first kids on the bus and could sit anywhere I wanted. It was worth the longer walk. Coming home from school, we all got on at the same time, so the only issue was finding somebody to sit with. I would get off at the stop closest to my house. And some days, I'd step on every sidewalk crack as I walked home, thinking, step on a crack, break your father's back. And I felt guilty about that, too. My school activities didn't make my life any easier. Having some musical talent, I was in band, chorus, and was eventually recruited for the handbell choir. I loved music, but it didn't help my situation. A boy who is already on the radar of bullies doesn't benefit from excelling at something that isn't blatantly masculine. I was among the last picked for gym teams and a prime target during dodgeball. The locker room was terror-inducing. It was the first time I ever participated naked in a communal shower. At the YMCA, we would rinse off in our trunks before and after swimming. But in middle school, it was naked showers. If you wanted to skip them, you needed a note from a parent. On the one hand, the experience was informative from a developmental standpoint. To compare my body to those of others my age. But on the other... Being naked makes people no less judgmental or cruel. No social ground rules had been set, and the whole thing was a chaotic exercise in trying to figure out where to rest one's gaze. Sixth grade was a masterclass in understanding and conforming to norms. I would often wake up, sit on the edge of my bed, and cry at the thought of having to go to school. For being a run-down, blue-collar town with an active clan, we had a surprisingly progressive public school system with rich music and science programs. We also took some impressive field trips. One of the first was to a high school in another part of our school district to see a professional symphony orchestra perform. The school had a full concert hall with acoustics intentionally designed for live performances, 
as opposed to just a gymnasium or cafeteria set up for the school band or chorus. It had a stage, a fly space, and raked seating. I'd never been to a concert hall before, and from the moment we entered, I knew something wonderful was about to happen. I was seated just off-center from the stage, but at the exact same height as the stage. The orchestra had taken their seats and were tuning their instruments. There were instruments I recognized by their sound, but had never actually seen in person, and rows of strings. The only strings I'd heard live were guitars and my father's string bass. The conductor came out. There was a smattering of applause. The lights dimmed. The audience grew silent. The conductor raised his baton, the orchestra their instruments, and with a flick, the room was filled with the buzzing sound of dozens of violins playing the flight of the bumblebee. I was enthralled. The sound from the string section made my chest and glasses vibrate and my ears tickle. I leaned forward on the edge of my seat, eyes wide, with goosebumps crawling all over my skin. Even my brain felt as if it were tingling. I had never been in such an immersive sensory experience. It was like living inside the music. It was magical. When I got home that day, I couldn't wait to tell my mother all about it. I walked in the door, and before I could open my mouth, she was at me. What's this? And she presented me with a bottle of Brex hair shampoo filled with a yellow liquid. What it was was a bottle I kept under my bed so that if I had to pee at night, I wouldn't have to leave my room and go into the bathroom where our father would put us in the middle of the night with paper and crayons. Excited about the field trip, I'd forgotten to rinse it out that morning. Before I could say anything, she continued, I know it's urine, but what I don't know is why it's under your bed. She would routinely rummage through my room, looking for who knew what, and would throw things out without discussion. I never had any sense of permanence. I could leave for school one day and come home to discover something I'd been collecting for years was just gone, with no discussion or explanation. At this point in my life, I didn't have access to the memories of my father's incest or how he'd put me in the bathroom late at night, but my body carried a sense of dread about being in there at night. Using that bottle was the arrangement my subconscious mind had worked out with my conscious mind to deal with it. But at the same time, I couldn't explain it. I don't ever want to find something like this again, she said. The summer between 6th and 7th grade brought several changes. The first was that I started a paper route. The papers would be delivered at my home in bundles. I'd fold each one, load my canvas sling sack, and deliver them on my bicycle. I learned about collections and more details about the lives of my neighbors than I ever wanted to know. It was eye-opening to see how many of the meanest kids at school would be completely different at home when their parents put them in the position of having to tell me they couldn't afford to pay their bill that month. It forced a level of intimacy upon us, but didn't change any dynamics between us in public. I never shared their hardships with anyone. I had learned to keep so many of my own secrets, but were a few more from others. My paper route taught me that money was freedom. I was making what seemed like a fortune each month. I wasn't much of a saver, but I tried to be a good friend. I was always taking friends for Slurpees or ice cream or to play the video game at the local convenience store. I bought a raft and my friends and I used the hell out of it in the creek that ran along the town parks. I bought myself a nicer bike. I could buy records or anything else when I wanted to and no longer had to deal with the guilt or drama of getting an allowance from my parents. Another change was our father took up ice skating and an affair. I was drawn into his affair as cover, and he'd take me to the ice rink for lessons while he and the woman he was seeing spent time together. They did skate together, even competed, but it was clear they were having an affair. He was tender with her in a way he wasn't with our mother. 
Although our mother never directly called him out for his behavior in front of us, her comments made it clear she was well aware of the affair. I was conflicted about the time I was spending with my father. As horrible as he was, I was still young enough to want his love, attention, praise, and affection. He once bought me a cup of hot chocolate at the ice rink. Forty years later, and I remember that as a moment of receiving affection from my father. There were so few of those moments that a hot chocolate shines brightly in my memory. It was disturbing to be with him, but I took what I could from the opportunity and enjoyed the ice skating lessons. Gliding on the ice was like flying. A computer arrived at our home in the form of a Radio Shack Model 1 Level 2 TRS-80. It was cutting edge at the time with its 16K cassette-driven memory system. Our father, who worked with the computers for the government, turned the unfinished room at the top of the stairs to the second floor into the computer room, which was to say he put in a table, a chair, and set up the machine. Most other kids didn't understand the significance of having a home computer. I was suddenly popular with a small subset of kids I'd never hung around with, the geeks. One friend in particular who lived in the development adjacent to ours understood its significance. We'd gone to elementary school together, but it wasn't until the arrival of the computer that we had much to talk about. I was juggling so much personally, I didn't devote much of my energy to learning. He, on the other hand, was intellectually voracious. He had an Atari gaming system, and we'd alternate between our houses most weekends for over a year. We had a number of games for our new computer. One simulated conversation and was called Eliza. Eliza worked under the premise of being a psychoanalysis tool. My sister would load the program and chat with it until, inevitably, she'd leave in tears of frustration. It was only capable of spitting back information a user had previously entered. It would start by displaying, How do you do? Please state your problem on the black and white screen. One could type, I am angry at my mother. What would being angry at your mother mean to you? Eliza would reply. My sister would then pour her heart out to this chatterbot, and it would come back with something like, What makes you so sure? Or, Let's change the subject, or please go on. Then after a time, it would respond with, Earlier you said you are angry. It was a facade of conversation, which, to someone who already felt ignored and unseen, was unintentionally cruel. Once my sister realized it couldn't help her, she gave up and never went back. She needed answers, not more questions. I had a shocking series of revelations about my parents' sex lives. We had a room upstairs with a bumper pool table and our mother's sewing machine. With the cover on the table, it was perfect for playing cards, and she would use it to cut fabric for her sewing patterns. One Saturday afternoon, I had a few friends over to play cards. We were not allowed to invite people over without permission, so this was not a surprise to anyone. After a time, I needed to ask if we could have soda and snacks, so I went down the hall to my parents' bedroom, not knowing they were in there together. I opened the door to find my father lying on his back, his shorts down around his ankles, and my mother's face buried between his thighs. I immediately closed the door. I was shocked. Given all the fighting in his affair, it never occurred to me they were still being sexual. They also knew I had friends over, and we were only 20 feet away. I went back to the game room. I think I just saw my parents having sex, I said. There was awkward laughter just as my mother entered the room, disheveled. What's so funny? I don't recall my cover story, but she seemed satisfied enough and moved on. She never discussed it with me. There was a small closet off the computer room. In it, our father had installed a wall safe. I was bored one day and began fooling around with the tumbler. I had the thing cracked in under an hour. In it were some documents, a French tickler, which is a kind of condom with a soft, oddly shaped tip, 
and a Polaroid of our mother with someone's penis in her mouth. I stared. Who was taking that picture? There was clearly a third person involved given the angles and body postures. Who was the man in bed with her? Was it our father or someone else and our father was taking the picture? I couldn't tell. And why was this a Polaroid when he had an entire dark room in the basement? I put it back in the safe exactly as I thought I'd found it, closed the door, and spun the tumbler. I felt sick to my stomach and didn't know why. Our father's mother died that summer. They called him to tell him the time was coming. We gathered as a family and went to what passed as the nursing home he had put her in. It was an open ward that looked much like a school cafeteria. It was haunted by overly bright fluorescent lighting and the smell of urine. There were two rows of hospital beds along a central corridor. Each bed had a ceiling-mounted privacy curtain, but no actual privacy. She was a shell of a person. Our father said a few quiet words to her, and the next time I saw her was in her casket at her viewing. She was the first dead person I can remember seeing. I approached her alone, scared but compelled. I looked inside and took her in. Part of me expected her eyes to flutter open. I stared at her chest to see if she was breathing. I reached out and touched her hand and was surprised that she was room temperature. I shed no tears for her. Other than the time she thought I was a pig in her bed, my only other memories of her were accidentally setting her hair on fire and how when she lived with us, she would often mistake the magazine rack near the bathroom door for the toilet. Tommy and Teddy's parents decided to divorce. They were the first kids I knew whose parents were divorcing. Their father was a photographer, and although their mother had recently had a baby girl, she got her real estate license to ensure an income. The three of us, Teddy, Tommy, and me, were hanging out at their house. Teddy often had to watch their little sister. As he was cleaning her up during a diaper change, he said, Hey, look at this. We gathered around the crib. Watch, Teddy said, and rubbed his forefinger over his infant sister's labia. She smiled. Teddy laughed. Do it again, Tommy said. And again she smiled. Stop it, I said quietly. What? Teddy asked, annoyed that I had interrupted his fun. Louder and more sure of myself, I said, Stop it! Just change her diaper and leave her alone. I was shaking and didn't know why. He stopped and they started to mock me and fell into laughing. I left. And it was the last time I ever entered that house. I hung out less with Tommy after that. And he took up with Lyle, the youngest kid in the family across the street from my house. Lyle was between Teddy and Tommy in age, and rough. Not quite a bully, but he definitely had a chip on his shoulder. We were neighborly enough with each other, but not close. His family moved into the house the fall of my fourth grade year. They were family of four, military, and Lyle's mom was from England. She and his father had met while he was stationed in Europe. The neighborhood met them that winter, when their chimney caught fire. Lyle's mother announced to the growing crowd, Well, that's one way to meet your new neighbors. Everyone laughed. Just before I started seventh grade, Lyle and Tommy were outside my house. Tommy's house was on the market, and despite everything, the three of us would hang out sometimes. I came out with my camera to take a picture of them. Just before I took it, they both cocked their hips out to the side, raised one arm, bent at the elbow, and cocked their hands down sharply and said, Fag! Like someone would say, Cheese! I took the picture and just stood there, not sure of what to do. Lyle said, What's the matter? You mean you don't know what a fag is? And they burst out laughing as if that's an inside joke, which I assumed was at my expense. 
I doubted my standing up for Tommy's little sister went over well, and I had no idea what he may or may not have told Lyle about our history, or how he would have spun it. Eventually I learned that Lyle had cornered Tommy and accused him of being a fag. Tommy deflected and said he wasn't, but he thought I was. Classic move. After that picture, I stopped hanging around with either of them. Tommy's family moved not long after. Anytime Lyle was in my presence and thought no one was looking, he'd look at me, hold up his arm, and make the limp wrist gesture. Although fag was thrown around for all sorts of reasons, as we got older, it was more specifically used to accuse someone of being homosexual. I knew if I was a fag, I was going to be a target in the neighborhood, at the bus stop, at school, and at home. I began to consciously hide any signs that could make someone think I was a fag. My 12-year-old self began the effort by hanging the biggest poster of Farrah Fawcett I could find on the wall above my headboard. Although I loved to do crafts and was good at it, I stopped. No more crocheting, latch hooking, or baking for me. I started paying more attention to who I hung out with, how I dressed, how I spoke, and my facial expressions. I had a resting happy face, and I worked to eliminate my smile. I became more conscious of my body language, my eye contact, and where I was looking if I was daydreaming. I did everything I could to straighten up. I didn't know what I was, but I knew I didn't want to be a fag and a target. In seventh grade, I still had band, chorus, and scouts. I had a full period of art, which I used to channel my crafting into something more acceptable. I was pretty good at it, it turned out. Many of my friends had broken off into couples, but I had no interest. For show, I did start going to any school dance that came along. I would just stand along the cafeteria wall, but by God, I was there. I was going to more dances than my siblings had. At one point, I was bullied into asking out a classmate. Eden was in my grade and tough as nails. She had blue big pen tattoos all over the backs of her fingers. There was a fad called chicken scratching. You'd take your fingernail and slowly scrape the skin off the back of each hand in a single strip about one inch long. The goal was to dig so deeply, you'd leave a scar. Eden was all in. She was full of rage, and no one got in her way. She'd become the protector of the most marginalized girl at school, Georgette. Georgette was nice enough, but not the most attractive girl, and had been ostracized by the herd. Many kids made fun of her, but Eden took her under her wing. That fall, Eden demanded that I ask Georgette out, or she'd break my face. I didn't want to hurt Georgette any more than I wanted to go out with her. I also knew Eden was not kidding. I couldn't go to a teacher, or I'd look ridiculous, but at the time, it was a clear and present social danger. The whole thing came to a head one afternoon in shop class. I pushed back against Eden's threat, and in front of the entire class, she said loudly, What, are you a fag, or do you think you're too good for Georgette? That word! All eyes turned toward us. I didn't know what to do. It wouldn't be honest. I wasn't interested in Georgette, but I had no doubt Eden could take me. Fine. Georgette, would you go out with me? All eyes were on us. No. Why would I go out with you? She said. She and Eden started laughing, and the class joined in. This setup was the goal all along. And Eden moved on to her next target. Elroy moved back, and I tried to pick up our friendship. We ran into each other just before the start of the school year at the movies. He was even more withdrawn. His mannerisms hadn't changed, and while he was away, I learned the word to describe him was effeminate. When we were in elementary school, his mannerisms were given a pass, but now they made him a target. 
He was my one exception to worrying about who I hung out with, though. We were in band together, we'd eat lunch together, and we spent time together outside of school. He was carrying some burden he wouldn't discuss. It was good to have him back, but he wasn't the same. Something had been taken from him, and I couldn't figure out what. I was still in Boy Scouts, which met in the basement of my church. My father was no longer a chaperone. He had too many other things going on in his life, which was fine by me. The troopmaster was an intentionally cruel man who saw it as his mission to mold us into what he felt we should be. The tone of the troop was masculinity at any cost. One of my fellow troop members, Milton, was a grade behind me and lived in my neighborhood. His father, a troop chaperone, had put him in Boy Scouts for the sole purpose of toughening him up. They were constantly arguing. Milton was obese and the kind of kid who, no matter what happened in life, it seemed to happen to him. It was like this for him all through school. If someone had wet their pants, it was probably Milton. If someone had been caught eating glue, it was probably Milton. Truly last to be picked for everything, a bit slow in the uptake, a debilitated stutterer with profoundly ill-equipped parents. Milton's father used a chaperone position to denigrate all the boys whenever an opportunity presented itself. The troop was doing a team activity of some sort in the parking lot of the church. I didn't catch the exact details leading up to his act of defiance, but suddenly the two were engaged in a keystone cop-like chase scene, enraged father running after defiant-turned-terrified son. Milton's arms pinwheeled as his father chased him, both of their faces red from exertion as they ran in an ever-tightening spiral until finally Milton's father grabbed him by his uniform collar, threw him to the ground, jumped on him, and began slapping him about his head and face. Milton called out for help through his tears. No one moved. The other fathers, witnessing the scene, muttered under their breath and walked away, while the other scouts and I stood and stared, unsure of what to do. The Boy Scout law, to which everyone in the troop had sworn an oath, was to be trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent. So many laws and oaths were violated by the entire troop that day, including me. I quit Boy Scouts soon after. I'd already learned fathers don't protect their children. People don't always help you when you're in crisis, and oaths don't always matter. The last day of seventh grade, while emptying out my locker, a kid from my neighborhood came running down the hall. His name was David. He was the class clown and very popular. He was the same age as me, dark hair, ridiculously red lips like me, and athletic, unlike me. As I reached my hand into my locker, David ran by, said fag, and slammed my locker door. My wrist was caught between the frame and the door exactly at the locking mechanism, which tore a hole in my skin on the underside of my wrist. Blood dripped everywhere. Eighth grade was one of the most confusing times of my life. I took a volunteer role in the principal's office one period, so I could be close to the assistant principal. He had played college football, and I'd never met anyone as physically fit as he was. He was a presence everywhere he went. All the kids liked and feared him. He was our chaperone for a trip to D.C. that year. I got to sit next to him on the bus on the way there and tried to soak up his masculinity like a sponge. Although I found him attractive, I was desperate for a father figure's attention. On the way home, I had to sit next to our shop teacher. He was a miserable human being, always snide and full of anger. The bus seated three people on one side and two on the other. 
We were in a two-seater, and our arms would brush as the bus would bounce along. He pulled his arm away at one point and said, What are you, a fag? Stop brushing up against me. What an asshole. I had caught up with my peers cognitively, and I was enjoying school more. I was also developing better control over my body. I hadn't been very coordinated, but suddenly I was excelling at field hockey, which gave me something else to look forward to at school. My brother had gone away to college, and our father was more and more absent on the weekends. I had become good friends over the last year with a boy who lived on the street behind us. His name was Bobby. We ended up seated next to each other in English class. He was the funniest kid I had ever met. We found ourselves on the same team in a bowling league, which deepened our connection. One day he told me his family had gotten HBO, which was unusual as many of our parents wouldn't spend the money. He started inviting me over to watch the weekly Saturday HBO movie premieres, and we spent most Saturdays together and eventually became best friends. Strictly friends. Until one night, getting ready to leave his house to go home, I realized I loved him and immediately did the mental gymnastics that it was just a platonic love. I'd never actually felt this kind of love before. At the end of the day, at that age, I yearned to be seen, to experience regular affection, and to be loved back. My feelings for Bobby spurred me to get serious about finding a girlfriend. I did not want to be homosexual. I was doing everything I could not to be. I was still going to dances in the hopes that just being there, even alone, would make me normal. We had a fall dance, and I decided to ask Laura. Laura and I were in many classes over the last couple of years. She was smart and kind, and one day at school I passed her a note asking if she'd like to go to the dance. That's how it was done. Later that day, I got a note back that read yes. I was terrified. After that dance, we would eat lunch together and talk on the phone in the evening, and we ended up going steady. The first time we kissed, I felt nothing. And given the lack of tenderness I saw between my parents, Part of me assumed that was what I was supposed to feel. Nothing. By eighth grade, I was spending more time at the town's public library. They offered summer camps, which I had attended a couple of times over the years. By this time, we had to do actual research for papers and needed the resources of the library. The building was built in the mid-19th century and was rumored to be haunted. I loved the space. The smell of the books, the creaky floors, the peacefulness of it all. The library became one of my favorite places to spend time. One cold February, I was waiting out front for my mother to pick me up. The library had just closed, it was dark, and my mother was nowhere to be seen. Five, ten, fifteen, twenty minutes went by, and finally I saw the headlights of our family station wagon. As I opened the car door, I said, It's about time! She had clearly been crying. I assumed she and my father had had a fight. My mother called, Daddy died, and she burst into fresh tears. We cried in silence all the way home. I loved my grandfather, but I was crying because at that age, if my mother cried, I cried. It was like programming. We flew out to be with our grandmother, who was devastated but stoic. She held a bottomless Manhattan in one hand and a lit cigarette in the other. The viewing was initially just family. We were waiting for the room to open to the public. I kept looking around, but I couldn't find the casket. Just a ton of flowers at the front of the room. I assumed they'd bring them in at any minute. My mom was standing with her sister. Both were crying. I went over to my mom and gave her a hug. Stop hanging on me, she barked and shoved me backwards. Then went back to crying and talking to my aunt. 
She said this loudly enough that heads turned in our direction. I was again shamed and publicly rejected by my mother. And of course, I felt I'd done something wrong and had somehow embarrassed my grandmother at her husband's funeral. I asked my sister where the casket was. There isn't one. He was cremated. See that urn? She pointed to the flowers. Those are his ashes. I had no idea what to make of that. I'd heard of cremation, but hadn't given it much thought. I walked over to the urn, wondering how someone so big, who lived such a robust life, could be reduced to something so small and unremarkable. As fearful as I was over seeing my grandmother's body, I didn't appreciate the closure it had brought me until his death. I looked for him everywhere. I'd see someone who was built like him with wispy white hair, and for a second, I'd think it could be him. This went on for a couple of years. I never got to say goodbye to him, and it left a hole inside me. I tried sharing this with my mother, which of course turned into how much harder it was for her, and blah 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 blah. My feelings didn't matter. I didn't matter. The Saturday after we got home from the funeral, I spent most of the day with Bobby. We had bowling in the morning, our own separate chores, then we got back together again for the HBO movie of the week at his house that night. His older sister was there with his mother, and the two were sitting at the table, pouring melted chocolate into molds, which they explained were supposed to look like the head and bare breasts of Dolly Parton. They were called Dolly Pops. His mom used to do things like this to augment her income. I don't recall there being anything particularly special about that evening, but I remember feeling soul-crushingly lonely. Bobby and I were talking as we always did, and as I watched him, I envied everything about him. His looks, his family, he and his sister truly cared for one another, and his mother clearly loved her children and would do anything for them. I envied his confidence, his humor, his generosity of spirit, He was truly a good person. And my love for him made my heart ache whenever I was with him. And I pushed it down inside myself as far as I could and felt despair, unwanted and unloved. When I got home, my father's car was in the driveway, but everyone else was out for the evening. I went upstairs to watch TV in the family room and found my father passed out drunk and snoring on the sectional sofa directly opposite the TV. His brown and ivory polyester nightshirt had ridden up his thighs, and his cock and balls were exposed. I was transfixed. And then, I was on my knees, between his sprawled legs. I pushed his nightshirt further up his thighs, and I put my mouth on his cock. He stirred and mumbled something. I immediately pulled away, stood up, ran from the room, and stopped in the hallway to see if he had fully awoken. I stood just outside the room, holding my breath, listening. He began to snore. I let out a jagged breath and began to shake uncontrollably. I went down to my room and closed and locked my door. Hot tears stung my eyes. What did I just do? Why in the world did I do that? I was disgusted with myself and sad and felt profoundly alone and unloved and unlovable. It was true. I was a faggot. The exact same thing happened the next weekend, and again, I was full of confusion and self-loathing. What was I doing? And more confusing still, why was I doing it? I couldn't understand why I would do that to my own father, a man I loathed and feared. I started thinking about ways to kill myself. 
Almost a month to the day after my grandfather's death, I turned 14. I wanted to have a mixed party of both boys and girls. Many of my friends had girlfriends, and now that I did too, they were looking at me differently, in a more inclusive way, which led them to sharing the various things they were doing with their girlfriends. Some of it, I'm sure, was absolute horseshit, but a number of them had shared that they'd been exploring oral sex with their girlfriends. My gauge for the age appropriateness of oral sex was skewed given my own experiences, but I had firsthand evidence that kids my age knew what oral sex was. I was inclined to believe a couple of my friends. I was able to have the party in the basement of the house. A few years earlier, our father had built a bar in the basement and added a gas fireplace. I invited six of my friends, their girlfriends, and Laura. The party was on a Saturday afternoon and was unremarkable. One of my friends asked about the door at the end of the basement opposite the stairs. What's that? Oh, that's my parents' office, I said. Can we see it? I guess. It's locked. Let me go around. There's another entrance to the office from the unfinished side of the basement. I went around and opened the door. The place was okay, but disused. There was an old and tattered oriental rug on the floor, a manual typewriter, a desk, file cabinets, and my father's darkroom equipment. This will be perfect, he said. For what? Seven minutes in heaven. Everyone loved the idea. We drew straws to see which couple would go first. When it came to be my turn, my heart was racing. With everything that had happened with my father, I needed to prove to myself once and for all that I was not a fag. I felt like my life depended on it. Laura had very large breasts for her age. She had on a tight, fuzzy sweater and slacks. She was also wearing lip gloss and some perfume. She was a lovely person and an attractive girl. What do you want to do, she asked. I don't know. You? We can kiss, she offered. We kissed for a minute. I felt nothing. It was so mechanical. Just the moist friction of our tongues, inelegantly rubbing together in each other's mouths. We separated and faced each other quietly. Can I touch your chest? I asked. Okay, but only over the sweater. I ran my hand over her sweater-bound breasts. I found myself thinking how nice the sweater felt under my hand and gave almost no thought to what lay beneath. She was trembling. Well, it's your birthday. What do you want? And there it was. What I wanted was not to be a fag. I've heard a lot of people talking about blowjobs. Can I have a blowjob? I asked, all the while thinking, Oh, please, oh, please, oh, please, I don't want to be a fag. I don't want to be a fag. I don't want to be a fag. I don't know, she said hesitantly. What is that like? Well... You would get on your knees, I would take out my dick, and you would suck it. She was not excited about the idea. Please, if you don't like it, we can stop. Okay, but only if we can stop. Oh my god, it was happening. Finally, I wasn't going to have to worry about being a faggot anymore. I reached down and unzipped my jeans. Before I could go any further, she stepped back. Stop. I don't want to do this, she said. Tears were welling in her eyes. I looked at the floor and in a low, desperate voice said, Laura, please, you have no idea how much I need this. No, I'm sorry, I don't want to do that. We locked eyes. Tears were now flowing down her face. I let out a long breath and zipped up my pants. You guys are awfully quiet in there. This was met with lots of laughter and catcalls. 
She wiped the tears from her eyes as we silently faced each other. Okay, time's up, someone called. It certainly was. She broke up with me the following Monday. The next year, we started at different high schools and never saw each other again. That spring, I spent another Saturday with Bobby. Same thing. Bowling in the morning, doing her own things in the afternoon, and me going to his house to watch the HBO movie of the week. I was despondent over my failed birthday party blowjob, the thing I thought that would set me free from my feelings toward Bobby and other guys in general. I don't know why it was all so important. I'd spent a lifetime feeling lonely, unwanted, unloved. Why now did I suddenly long for affection, any affection? And why from Bobby? I began having thoughts of suicide again. I had made a mental list of all the kids in the neighborhood who had talked about their parents having guns. I think the movie we watched was Flash Gordon. Horrible. Bobby could tell something was wrong with me and asked as much. I deflected and said I was depressed about Laura. He gave me a hug. My entire body reacted as if he'd passed an electrical current through me. I have to go, I said. I broke the hug and headed out. Was it the hug? He called out with a chuckle as I headed for the door. No, it wasn't the hug. I just have to go home. Of course it was the hug. Outside of my grandmother, I'd never been hugged like that before, and certainly not by someone I was in love with. When I got home, once again, only my father was there. I went upstairs to watch TV. All the lights were off on the second floor. I turned on the hall light and saw my parents' bedroom door was open, but the room beyond was dark. I started to shake. I slowly walked down the hall, as if compelled, and stood in the doorway. What do you want? My father asked. What would you say if I asked if I could give you a blowjob? I asked in a calm voice. I'd say no. There was no surprise. There was no concern. There was nothing. No follow-up whatsoever. Feeling again confused and disgusted with myself for asking my father such a thing, I turned and went downstairs to my room. Again, hot tears filled my eyes. I raged inwardly at my lack of understanding as to what was happening to me. I could not understand what was driving me to do such a depraved thing. I became fixated on suicide. It was my only way out. I was disgusting and I deserved to die. I've always approached the memories of propositioning my father from a position of absolute confusion and defensiveness, from the position that I had to explain and defend my actions. I have finally come to understand I have nothing to defend. My father's affection toward me came almost exclusively in the form of sex. I was starved for his affection. A cup of hot chocolate and an ice rink was the most kindness my father had shown me in almost a decade. And although at the time, I didn't have conscious access to the memories of his sexual abuse, pleasing him sexually was what he had groomed me to do. I existed to meet his sexual needs. Not having the memories at the time I put his dick in my mouth or offered him a blowjob made me loathe myself. The nature of his abuse made me carry the guilt and the shame for him, my abuser. But the reality is, those moments with him in 8th grade were absolutely inevitable. It was the manifestation of his years of grooming.
The next Saturday morning, I was watching TV in the basement with my sister. Our mother called me upstairs to the kitchen. Your father told me what you asked him. Are you a faggot? Because if you are, we need to get you fixed. No, I said. Our mother had once worked in a VA hospital psych ward as a nurse. She would acknowledge that she had done so, but would never elaborate. And for someone who sought sympathy at every turn, I used to wonder what she had seen that was so horrifying even she couldn't talk about it to use it to her advantage. This knowledge made me innately terrified as to what getting me fixed could look like. Her question was more accusation and threat than anything else, and reminded me of the night my brother threw me under the bus for fooling around with my friend Jim. Neither event led to a single question as to the set of circumstances that led to the moment. Just like that evening about Jim all those years ago, this topic was also dropped and never discussed again. The following week at school, I made an appointment to see Mrs. Griffiths, one of the middle school's two guidance counselors. I was sleeping less, the pressure was mounting at home, and I was having thoughts of suicide. I needed help, and I didn't know where else to turn. The guidance office was across the hall from the main office where the principal, vice principal, and secretary sat. There was a waiting area and two counseling offices which sat behind insulated metal doors which had small windows formed around sheets of chicken wire. Those doors did little to instill a sense of comfort in the hearts of the people who passed through. Mrs. Griffith's office had two posters, one that read, God doesn't make trash, and the obligatory kitten wedged in the crook of a tree telling the reader to hang in there, kitty. So, Kit, why are you here today? She began. I don't like it when the other kids call me fag. She leaned back in her chair, lit a cigarette, inhaled deeply, and forcefully blew the smoke toward the open window of her office. Well, you're not, are you? She leaned forward, rested her arms on the edge of her desk, and gave me a penetrating stare. She wasn't so much asking as making a very strong suggestion that I not be. And once again in my life, I had not seen that coming. I looked to the kitten in the tree and thought, Hang in there, kit. No, of course not. I just don't like it. I averted my eyes. I couldn't simultaneously look someone in the face and lie. I hated lying. I was so sick of lying. Because if you are, that's a conversation better had with your parents and the principal. Long pause. Another penetrating stare. The smoke from her cigarette was curling around her head like a snake and being lazily pulled toward the open window. She went on to say that kids say all sorts of things and sent me back to class. Not long after my visit with the counselor, Milton must have had almost the exact same conversation, only his must have ended with a more honest declaration of his truth. One day he was summoned to the guidance counselor's office via the school's loudspeaker. About 20 minutes had gone by, when I heard Milton sobbing and screaming for help as his father dragged him along the ground from the main exit of the school and into the front parking lot. Anyone in a classroom at the front of the building could hear his cries for help through the open school windows. There was a mix of vicious and nervous laughter in my classroom. I could hear enough of his screaming to put together the gist of what had happened. I was terrified. My heart went out to him. We had similar experiences growing up, and I am thankful to whatever it was that allowed me to process my remarkably parallel home life in a different way. The intersection of Milton and my common experiences will be with me forever. At the time, he was the measure against which I was able to feel somewhat fortunate about my own circumstances. 
It was a shitty way to find solace in my life, using someone else's tragedies as a gauge for my own, but it occasionally helped me to survive my own hell. Milton's disclosure that he was gay went through the school like wildfire, and he was branded an outcast for the rest of his time in school. Between my mother and our kitchen, and Milton's experience in school, I kept my concerns about my sexual orientation to myself from that point forward. I went as far into the closet as possible. Milton went on to commit suicide. Epilogue After the rise of the Me Too movement, I thought a lot about Laura and my 14th birthday party and decided to reach out to her on social media. I had no idea how my contact would be received, and I knew once I put something on any platform, I would have no control over what would happen to it. Here's our exchange. Dear Laura, I realize this message is coming out of left field, and this will not be an easy read, but I owe you an apology from my 14th birthday party 38 years ago. My whole life, I have done my best to never intentionally hurt someone, and when I look back on my life, you are the only person who comes to mind that I have ever truly hurt, and for that I am deeply sorry. You are the only person I have ever made cry, and worse than that, I put you in an ugly situation, and I hadn't the right. I began thinking of that party during Trump's election, and how part of the media moved to dismiss the whole grab him by the pussy comment as, boys will be boys. Although I literally was a boy at the time, my behavior sickens me to think about to this day. You may have never given that party another thought, or perhaps you did and have made your peace with it and I could be re-traumatizing you. If so, I truly apologize for that too. It's a delicate thing, attempting to put right the past without disturbing the present. I have completely distanced myself from our hometown and most everyone in or from it. When I get a Facebook request from someone from our childhood years, I either ignore it outright or accept it and immediately unfriend the person. It's too painful. Several years ago, you sent me a friend request on Facebook. I accepted it, and then, as I recall, unfriended you. I doubt that in eighth grade I shared much with you about my home life. Not that it excuses anything, but I'm hoping to provide context. I was sexually abused at the hands of my father from infancy. When I grew too old for him by elementary school, my older brother took over the abuse. By middle school, I realized, making things even more confusing, that I was gay, and I desperately wanted not to be. At my 14th birthday party, which was held in the basement of my parents' house, the other people who were there with their boyfriends or girlfriends were taking turns going into my parents' office and having their private time to do whatever it is they did. At the time, my male friends were talking about their girlfriends having performed various sexual acts with them. It's difficult to imagine in 8th grade we were doing much of anything but I also think we clean up our sexual curiosity as we age and have children, so we don't have to imagine what our kids are getting up to. Anyway, my male friends were talking endlessly about oral sex. I remember going into the office and asking, practically begging you, to give me head. You began to cry and pleaded with me to stop, which I did. I remember upsetting you deeply, and I remember that nothing ever happened physically. Yet here I am at 51, having spent the last 30 years off and on in psychotherapy trying to pick apart and understand what happened to me at the hands of my father and brother. I'm sure I took something from you, and I hadn't the right. Perhaps I took some sense of innocence or security, or both. That same year, Milton came out to the school guidance counselor, who called his parents in for a conference. I remember them dragging him sobbing out of her office and out of school. 
That same year, my mother approached me and asked, are you a faggot? Because if you are, we can get you fixed. As I said, I desperately didn't want to be gay. My father beat us all enough as it was, and after seeing what happened to Milton, I was terrified. But I am sorry, Laura. I am sorry I violated your boundaries. I am sorry I didn't have better sense or the coping mechanism to deal with my own shit without hurting you. And I am sorry if the act of this apology causes you any additional upset. I imagine if you were deeply upset by this, you wouldn't have ever reached out to be Facebook friends. I'm not looking for any absolution, but nonetheless, in the wake of the Me Too movement, I feel I owed you an explanation and an apology. I deeply believe saying you're sorry to someone when you've done something wrong is simply the right thing to do regardless of the outcome. I just wish I'd said it sooner, and I'm so very sorry I ever upset you in such a deep and intimate way. Kit. Her response came quickly. Kit. Wow. I've read this many times and have so many things running through my mind, but first I'll say thank you for such a heartfelt message, and no, you did not emotionally scar me. It's obvious that you are a good and caring person for you to reach out and apologize for something that happened 38 years ago. You did not share anything about your home life with me. I'm so sorry. That is an unthinkable, horrible thing to happen to anyone. But even worse, it was at the hands of someone you trust, or at least someone you should be able to trust. My first husband was sexually abused as a child by a family member, so I have seen, from the outside looking in, the impact that it can have on your life. He passed several years ago, not by his own hand, although I thought he would many times. I do remember being at a party with you, going in the office with you, but no ill feelings toward you. Trust me, you are not the only guy in my life that would test their boundaries. Maybe you were the first. To be honest, I'd forgotten about that part. I feel good that I stood my ground. In my life, I've been too much of a people pleaser and let people take advantage of my care and compassion. Not sexually, but at work, home, family, etc. At 14 years old, the other guys were likely lying about what they were getting. Trust me, none of my 14-year-old girlfriends were talking about giving her boyfriend oral sex or even that he was asking for it. I don't remember Milton or that he came out in middle school. His parents were also abusive for not loving their child for who he was. I know that things were different back then, and I guess it was taboo to be gay, but I'm glad you have found yourself and have been able to distance yourself from those that hurt you. Family is not always blood. Family are those that are there for you and support you when you need them. Thank you for digging deep into such an emotional place to reach out and apologize to me. You were long ago forgiven. I'm sorry for what you went through and what it has left you to deal with in your life. However, I know that you are a very strong, caring person to be able to write the message that you wrote. I sincerely hope that you can look at yourself as the survivor that you are and be proud of yourself. Many blessings. Lara 